You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. If you haven't heard of Axe Church before, we are a church in Camas, Washington. You can check us out at axecamas.org. You can see what we're about and what we're up to. We're glad you're listening today and hope you enjoy this sermon. Some of you know, as I sort of start this next passage we're going to get into, uh, that I like J.R.R. Tolkien. He's the guy who wrote uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Other nerds, good. I'm glad to see that. Um, I am a nerd. Uh, and in the book The Hobbit, there's this scene where the dwarves, they all get captured by these trolls, these big trolls, and they capture them, and they put them in these, in these sacks, and, and they're sitting there, and they're talking about how they're going to eat them. Are they going to mince them up and boil them? Are they going to you know, skin them? Are they going to uh, sit on them and squash them to jelly? I know this is kind of gross, but that's what they were talking about. Um, and as they're talking about this, uh, Gandalf comes in and he starts uh, pretending like he's the trolls and sort of throwing his voice like he's one of the other trolls. And he gets the trolls so worked up arguing with one another that it lasts long enough to where the sun comes up and the trolls turn to stone because everybody knows if trolls don't go underground before the sun comes up, they turn into stone, right? You all knew that. Um, every nerd knows that anyway. Um, and so basically what happened is Gandalf got them to fight amongst themselves. And in doing so, they forgot about the guys that they were going to eat. And in, in the end, they escaped. And we're going to see something like that with Paul today as he gets called before the Sanhedrin. He's going to turn uh, the, the people in the Sanhedrin sort of against each other. And they sort of aren't as concerned about him as much. And so we'll We'll walk through that as we go through. If you remember last time, Paul and his companions had made it to Jerusalem. Paul had gone, uh, purified himself and gone to the temple, was trying to uh, make the Jewish folks not get angry with him as they tended to do. Um, and yet they did get angry with him. They sort of arrested him. They accused him of, look, this is the guy who teaches everybody everywhere against the temple and against our, you know, our traditions and so on. And he brought a Gentile. He's brought Gentiles into the temple which was punishable by death. And so they arrested, uh, sort of, they sort of mob-violenced him, mob-violence styles, that's with a Z, if you were wondering, um, and started to beat him, okay? So they're beating him down, and the commander of the garrison comes, and he comes to, uh, to where Paul is, and he sort of rescues slash arrests him, okay? So he takes him, he takes him back to uh, the, the garrison where they were, um, and, he's, and he tries to find out kind of, what Paul's deal is, and Paul decides, as he often does, that he's going to basically preach. And he, so he starts to talk to the people, and he gives them this whole uh, speech, this whole sermon, and at the end of it, he mentions that Jesus has sent him to the Gentiles. As soon as he mentions that, these guys lose it. They lose their minds, right? They start tearing their clothes, throwing dust in the air, kind of like if you've ever imagined, um, if you've ever seen a baseball game where, where a coach gets really mad at the umpire and starts doing this thing where he puts the dust going up, I just imagine it looking kind of like that. That's what, that's what they're doing, right? They're, they're, they're picking up dust. They're throwing it in the air. They're very upset, okay? And so the commander has to bring Paul inside. Um, and then when he brings him inside, he says, look, guys, let's, let's scourge this guy and get the truth out of him. Let's get out of him why these people are so mad because, he, because the commander hadn't been able to discern why these people were so angry with Paul. And so that's where we stopped last time. We're going to get to verse 25. In chapter 22, that's where we'll start today. So if you have your Bibles, or it'll be up on the screen. And as they bound him with thongs, those are leather straps, um, uh, Paul said to the centurion who's... <laughs> those are leather straps that go around your arms, okay? I, too much laughing on that one. All right. Should have used a different, different translation. Um, a whole different kind of commander. Uh, Paul said to the centurion who stood by... 
<laughs> is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Is it, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? So Paul is using his Roman citizenship to get out of this situation, which is pretty smart. Um, it's actually illegal for them to beat Paul and torture him this way as a Roman citizen. And we've actually seen Paul do this before, where they put him in jail and he said, are you, they told him to leave and he said, oh, you mean you beat us in public and now you want us to just leave, but we're Roman citizens and they made him come and get him from the jail. You may remember that if you've been here for a while, um, but that's what he does here. Let's look at what happens, 26 through 29. It says, when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander saying, take care what you do for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yes. The commander answered, with a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Okay? Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him. All right. So the Romans are tripping out a little bit because you can't do this. You can't arrest a guy, strap him up, and scourge him if he's a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship had a number of benefits that came along with it, like voting and not being able to be scourged and tortured in this way. And so once they found this out, they're, they're worried because they could get in huge trouble for beating the Roman citizen this way. And he comes and he asks him, are you a citizen? Paul says, yes. And my guess is Paul's not looking like he's a super rich guy. And this guy says, look, I bought my citizenship with a lot of money. And this is the way at a certain period around Emperor Claudius, people were bribing their way, paying their way into Roman citizenship because it had a lot of benefits. And this guy had paid a lot of money. Actually, historically, it suggested that not too long after this guy probably bought his citizenship for a lot of money, it started getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. One historian says that if you gave the right person some broken bits of glass, you could get a Roman citizenship at some point. And at another point, it was just given to everybody. Um, but at the time that this guy came, it cost a lot of money. You had to spend a lot of money to become a Roman citizen, and it was worth it. It was worth it. And so it was a valuable thing. Um, and so because Paul had these rights, they had to stop. But the commander still needed to know why this mob was trying to kill Paul. He had to know that, but he couldn't get it from torture. So he had to find another way. Let's look at verse 2230. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So the leadership of the Jewish people gets together here. They get them all together. This is the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. We've talked about these folks before. The chief priests, the 70, these guys are the leaders of the people, of the Jewish people. They're the religious leaders. Okay, We, we, we talked about who they were, um, and, and this is... Uh, a different set of Sanhedrin probably than the one that we read about before. Remember, Peter and Paul had been in front of the Sanhedrin some years back. And when I say some years back, I mean for them. I know for us it was probably some years back that I talked about that also. Uh, but it was, it was probably 25 years ago that they had been there. So the Sanhedrin has probably switched a lot of the people that were in it by this point. And the commander of the garrison is not giving these guys uh, the, the right to try Paul to try him and give him a punishment. That, he's a Roman citizen, so that's going to happen in a Roman court. But he needs to know what they're actually accusing him of. So he's got him set there, and, and Paul, of course, as you know, whenever he gets set in front of a bunch of people, what's he going to do? He's going to speak, right? He's going to preach. So he gets started. 23 verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now Paul is not saying... I have lived in all good conscience my whole life. I've never done anything wrong. 
That's not the point that he's making here. What he's saying is the things that these guys have accused him of, right, causing a ruckus all over the world, maybe bringing a, a Gentile into the temple, that he hasn't done these things, that in these places where he went, he was simply preaching Jesus. He was not trying to cause that kind of, he was trying to cause a stir about Jesus that people might get saved. He was not trying to cause the kind of ruckus that these guys have caused. And remember, these are uh, Jews from Asia that had come, that were in the temple that had accused him. So he's speaking to these accusations that he's caused all this trouble. Well, he hasn't caused all this trouble by, on his own. Right? As we've read many of the stories, it wasn't him that was causing the trouble. It was these other people. So he's saying, my conscience is clear about my behavior in following Christ and the things that I've done. Let's see how they react to that. Verse 2. It says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. So that escalated quickly. He barely got a sentence out. And this guy says, hey, smack him on the mouth. Smack him on the mouth. Don't let him talk that way. All he had said is he was in good conscience. And this guy tells him to smack him on the mouth. This guy's very unhappy with Paul, obviously, to start with. And he's not liking the way this sermon is starting. So he smacks him on the mouth. And Paul hasn't been convicted of anything. So this punishment of hitting him is, of course, illegal. It's wrong for the high priest to do this. And Paul actually talks to him about that. Next verse. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? So Paul, even though he's in lots of trouble, isn't afraid to speak back here when this guy does something completely hypocritical. And Paul is, when he calls him a whitewashed wall, he's actually bringing something back from the book of Ezekiel, where we see the prophet talk about this in Ezekiel 13, 10, B through 16, it says, when someone builds a wall, they coat it with whitewash. Tell those who coat it with whitewash that it will fall. It will be washed off by the rain. Great hailstones will fall, and a stormy wind will strip it off. Look, when the wall collapses, won't it be said of you, where's the coat of paint that you spread all over the wall? Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. In my burning anger, I'll rip it open with a windstorm. In my anger, I'll rinse it off with rain and put an end to it with a hailstorm in my destructive rage. I'll tear down the wall that you've smeared with whitewash, level it to the ground, and tear at its foundation. Then it will collapse, and you'll perish with it. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. That's how I'll vent my anger on the wall and on the ones who coated it with whitewash. And I'll say to you, the wall is gone, and so are those who coated it. The prophets of Israel prophesied about Jerusalem and saw visions of peace concerning her. Yet there's no peace, declares the Lord God. So basically what happens is sometimes you'll make a wall, for those of you who are, who are in construction or have done some construction, uh, you know there's a way to do it, and then there's a way to do it fast. A way to do it, and a way to do it cheap. And so you, they could make this wall, and it could not have a good foundation. It could not be in good shape. But then you can slap some, some nice paint on it so that from the outside, it looks good. right? But on the inside, it's, it's going to crumble. And God's saying, I'm going to tear that down. That whitewash is going to be nothing. You're doing that to look good. And that's what Paul is saying about this guy. I used to have a car a Chevrolet Chevette, 1980 Chevrolet Chevette. If you're familiar with the vehicle, you know it's really something. Um, I think I've shown you all a picture of what one looks like before, um, but that's what I had. I had a 1980 Chevrolet Chevette, and I went down, and I got that thing painted at Earl Scheib, 300 bucks, I think. It was a lot of money back then, and, uh, and it was shiny. It was beautiful, but it was a piece of trash. I mean, it was totally, totally worthless. I, I, so much money went in that car. Don't get me started on it. But the point is, from the outside, it may have looked good for a Chevette. But in the inside, it was worthless. And that's the same thing that Paul is basically accusing this guy of. Hey, look, you hypocrite. You're saying that you're here. You're representing the law. 
You're saying that, that I've broken the law and that you're going you're gonna to judge me according to the law. You have accusations to make against me, but as soon as I start talking, you break the law yourself. You're a hypocrite, right? There's nothing behind you. Jesus had something similar to say to the scribes and the Pharisees uh, during his ministry. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That's in Matthew 23. This is not Paul being nice. This is not Paul trying to make friends and making sure he doesn't offend anybody. What he says here is a hard thing. He says a hard thing to the high priest, okay? Um, and, and it's important that he does because he's got to call this guy out for his hypocrisy. Let's look at the next couple of verses, four and five. And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, Paul brings some scripture from Exodus about not speaking evil of a ruler, okay? The interesting question is, why didn't Paul know who the high priest was? And there's a couple reasons why this might be, okay? There's a bunch of, people have all kinds of theories about this. One of the things is Paul hasn't been in Jerusalem much over the last 25 years. He's mostly been away. So he may not know if, the, if, if offices were changing and so on, who the high priest was at that time. Maybe he's not sitting in the right chair or whatever. There's also a lot of people think that Paul had some serious vision problems, eye problems, okay? They didn't have bifocals back then. Um, and, and there's some suggestion that Paul may have had uh, some, a disease that affected his eyes. And so maybe he just literally couldn't see who it was who said it. Um, there are a few other things, but either way, he didn't know that it was the high priest. So when he got upset, he must have thought it was somebody else. And he does sort of mea culpa. Hey, you know, it does say I shouldn't say that. He didn't say, I'm sorry. He did just quote the scripture that you're not supposed to do that. And they didn't know it was the high priest. So let's look at what happens. He's sitting here, and I think the Holy Spirit gives him some wisdom. Verses 6 through 9. But when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So Paul sees that there's a division in groups, a division of these guys who think different things. And he makes this statement that's true, it's true, but it was also likely to cause division between them. This is like Gandalf and the trolls, right? If I can get them fighting, it's less likely that I'm going to be brought into this. Gosh, I feel like such a nerd every time I say that. Anyway, it is like that, though. Paul still considers himself to be a Pharisee. That's true, which is to say that school of thought is the one that he was brought up, and the difference for him is he now follows Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but he did come up in the Pharisee. So wasn't, he wasn't lying. He didn't say, I used to be a Pharisee. I am a Pharisee. I'm still, I'm, I'm cool with this school of thought that's come up. Although I would, I would do it a little different than y'all are doing it. I'm still a Pharisee. Um, and then he claims, hey, look, it's for believing in the resurrection of the dead that I'm, that I'm in front of these people today. That's, that's the issue. Um, of course, their claim is that he's on trial for causing trouble all over the world. Their claim is that he's on trial for bringing a Gentile or Gentiles into the temple. And his claim is he's in there for preaching the resurrection of the dead. But really, he is, right? Because he's preaching Jesus Christ. 
He's preaching Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He's preaching that people can live after they're dead because Jesus Christ was the firstborn from the dead, that we can be forgiven from our sins, and that Jesus' resurrection is proof that he was God. These are big claims, right? And these guys don't like those claims. Those are not part of their tradition in their mind. They don't like those claims, but that's what Paul is claiming. So really, in a real way, he is on trial because of his belief in the resurrection of the dead. So he wasn't really lying or deceiving anybody. He's saying something that's true, but also happened to cause some dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we've talked about uh, who these guys are before, but when I checked my slides, it was back in July of 2016, so I figured we'll do a quick recap on who the Sadducees and the Pharisees are, okay? The Sadducees, uh, they descended from the priestly line of Zadok or Zadok from the time of David, okay? These are elitist guys. They, they tend to be wealthy. Uh, they're kind of upper class. They get along with the Romans pretty well. Uh, they are, they're liberal, uh, which is to say they're, they're, they're willing to incorporate Hellenism or Greek culture into Judaism. They're willing to sort of go with the culture of the day in a lot of ways. They reject um, the oral law, which the Pharisees liked a lot, and they basically, they just believe in the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those books, uh, those are the ones that they believe in. They don't believe in the rest of the Old Testament as Scripture, okay, and they, and they interpret them literally, and they don't believe there's an afterlife. They don't believe in angels or spirits. They don't believe in any of that kind of stuff. They believe that when you die, your soul dies with a body, and it's over, Okay, um, They were at odds constantly with the Pharisees, and at the, at the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Sadducees went away. There were no more Sadducees. There, there have not been any Sadducees or anyone from that school since then. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are actually the most influential in modern Judaism. If, you're, if you are a, a Jewish person and you're following modern Judaism, you're likely to have been influenced mostly by the, the school of Pharisees. Okay? They are not elitist. They're middle class common man. So the people like them more than they like the Sadducees because they're more common man folks. They're conservative. They're not interested as interested in bringing all the culture, the Hellenism, the Greek culture of that time in, in the Roman world in. They're not interested in that. Um, and they're, they have an oral law. So they have the scripture and they have all this oral law, the Talmud, all these things that they've, that they've added to it to interpret the law, and they consider that oral law to be really, really important, and they consider the written law to be something subject to interpretation, okay? Um, they do believe in an afterlife. Uh, they believe in resurrection, death, and judgment, okay? Resurrection after death, and they believe in judgment. And, of course, they're at odds with the Sadducees, okay? So a Pharisee, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was a, uh, in, I was probably ninth or 10th grade, I went to summer camp, I did that a lot in the summertime. My parents um, didn't want to be around me, and so they'd send me to summer camp. Don't blame them one bit. Um, and we decided, because we were really smart, that we were going to, me and a few of my buddies, we we're going to get mohawks, right? So we went into one of the, like, the cabins or whatever when somebody had clippers, of course, because um, what are you going to do for a week without being able to cut your hair, right? And so we took duct tape and made a line right down our heads and shaved everything that wasn't covered by the duct tape. We looked stupid, um, but we thought it was super cool, right? When I got home, my dad, as a pastor uh, of a church, was like, oh, no, that's not happening. And he made me shave the mohawk off, Pharisee, okay? Um, <laughs> legalistic, mohawk-hating Pharisees. I don't know if that's in Scripture. We'll just, we'll just assume that's an interpretation. So um, the Sadducees are like some people today who believe in God but don't think that he necessarily has a lot to do with our lives. 
right? Um, they can be, they're religious at some level, uh, but, they're, but they're not really looking to God in, in a real way, okay? No afterlife, no spiritual realm. Of course, if there's no afterlife, there's no what? There's no judgment. So it's going to affect the way you live. And there's some stories, Josephus, the historian, will tell you some stories about specifically this guy, Ananias. Um, it was, I believe it was said that he uh, would take the tithes that belonged to some of the other priests and literally let them starve to death so that he could take the tithes that were for them and keep them for himself. I mean, not a good guy, okay? And he does eventually get struck down about nine years later by some folks. So Paul's not wrong when he says that God will strike him. Um, these guys, if there's no judgment, you're not going to be as careful about the way you live, are you? Um, and so that's sort of them. The Pharisees, they believed in spiritualities. They believed in resurrection of the dead. They were right about a lot of things. However, they were very caught up in that legalism, right? The no Mohawk stuff. That you got to look a certain way. You got to act a certain way. You got to do a certain thing and make rule after rule after rule after rule. And that sort of became their tradition. They started to love that tradition maybe more than they loved God. Um, so Pharisees, of course, had more sway with the people because they were more middle class. Um, the Sadducees probably had more sway with the Romans, that's probably how that worked. So basically when Paul says he's a Pharisee and he's being accused for uh, the resurrection of the dead, that room splits just like that. And they start going at each other, right? Um, he, he gets that mob mentality sort of back. Um, the Pharisees are all of a sudden like, well, this guy seems okay to us. He said he's one of us. He said he believes in the resurrection of the dead. So we're kind of cool with that. Of course, the Sadducees are still, are still saying, no, 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 he's a bad guy. Um, and the Pharisees are like, oh, well, if an angel or a spirit talked to him, then, then, you know, who are we to say anything? But that's not what Paul had said. If you remember last week, the sermon that Paul had given the day before to the people was that Jesus, the risen Messiah, had spoken to him. Okay? The physically resurrected Jesus Christ had spoken to him, not an angel or spirit. See, there were, the Pharisees are willing to, well, maybe it's angel or spirit. And then we can deal with it because at least he's on our side on this issue. The, the, you know, it's kind of one of these, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's kind of where the Pharisees are on this. You know, if we're going to get into this issue that us and them fight about all the time, you know, at least this guy's on our side of that. And so we'll sort of forget about this other stuff for now. Um, but of course, they weren't really, they, it wouldn't have lasted. As soon as Paul said, no, 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 not angel or spirit, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, they would have turned on him again in a heartbeat, okay? So uh, let's look at the, the last verse we're going to look at today, verse 10. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So this got real. You, you literally, I, I, you almost see like, okay, you got the Pharisees on this side and they're kind of pulling on Paul and you got the Sadducees and they're kind of pulling on Paul or at least at some level there's some real uh, you know, violence uh, of anger and so on going on that they have to literally by force go and get Paul and bring him back. That's the level of how upset these guys were with one another. You don't mess with these guys' traditions or they get very, very, very upset. And so the commander puts Paul back in jail, and that's, that's where we'll stop uh, for, the, for this part of the Scripture. Let's, let's work through it a little bit. Let's, let's flesh it out a little bit. Sometimes when we read uh, history, Christian history in a text like this, we tend to put ourselves in the shoes of the Christ follower, which would make sense because hopefully we're all Christ followers here. If not, we'll talk about that afterwards. Um, in this case, Paul is a Christ follower. Whenever we read story of any kind, whether it's historical or fictional or whatever, we tend to sort of, uh, we cathart with the protagonist, right? The hero. That's who, that's who we're with in the story. 
Most of us, most of the time, right? That's who we're sort of following. That's where our emotions are going up and down with whoever the person who's sort of the protagonist of the story is in this case, Paul. So we sort of put ourselves in Paul's shoes, but sometimes we shouldn't do that. Sometimes we should look at the story a little closer and see uh, who we might really be in the story. Because I want you to remember something. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were the religious leaders of the day. They're the most religious people of the day. They're claiming to be religious. They're claiming to follow God. And so we got to ask ourselves, who are we more like? Like Paul or like the Pharisees? And that's not something you ask yourself once. It's something you ask yourself often, often. For a number of reasons, I want you to think through this. Jesus was prophesied in the Torah, okay? Clearly prophesied in the Torah, which was the only scripture that the Sadducees believed was actually scripture, okay? Jesus was prophesied about plenty there, okay? He was also prophesied all throughout the rest of the Old Testament by these prophets, which the Pharisees believed in all of all the Old Testament. He was prophesied clearly. And the Pharisees said, I believe in these guys, these prophets. So when Jesus was ministering, He's constantly getting into it with the Sadducees and the Pharisees about their traditions, about the way that they treat the people, about the way that they look at the law, right? And, and, and neither of them, as a group, as a group, neither of them liked Jesus. They didn't like him at all. And here Paul is facing the Sanhedrin because he's preaching Jesus. Now, at this, at this time in history, Jesus was there just a couple, a few decades ago, preaching, and these guys directly rejected Jesus, but they believed in the Scripture. Now, I want you to follow me here. I want you to think about this. If the prophets of the Old Testament had been there in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus came and had his ministry, they would have been Christians. They would have been Christ followers. They would have recognized him immediately, right? They were speaking about him. They were speaking for God. They would have recognized him immediately. These were the people who were the teachers of Israel, which is to say the scripture, those guys would have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. These guys, these Pharisees and Sadducees claimed to follow God, and they claimed to follow him as revealed by the prophets in scripture in the Old Testament, but yet they rejected and killed Jesus and persecuted those who followed Jesus but yet they said that they believed all these guys. Now, now, here's the thing. Is it possible that they started interpreting the Scripture? They started interpreting the Old Testament and the prophets kind of in their own image? Is it possible that they got lost? And is it possible they ignored what they didn't like, focused on what they did like? Is it possible they started interpreting the Scripture to create a, a religion that helped them to be comfortable? It's possible, right? We have people all over the world today, all over the world, who claim to follow Jesus. They claim to follow Christ. Just like these guys claim to follow the prophets. And everybody believed that they did. Everybody believed that they did. That was their, that, these were the religious leaders. We have all these people all over the world that now claim to follow Jesus. But if Jesus showed up, would we recognize him? If he came preaching like he preaches, would we recognize him? All I'm saying is maybe we're not always Paul in this story. Maybe sometimes we're whitewashed walls. Maybe sometimes we're whitewashed walls. What is it that these guys were rejecting about Jesus? They certainly, nobody would reject the idea of heaven and eternal life and forgiveness of sins, grace and peace. That's not what they were rejecting, right? They wanted all those things. Everybody wants those things. Everybody wants those things. But they didn't like the terms, they didn't like the terms because the terms said, give up your power and become a follower of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Give up your traditions and follow Jesus. 
And so while the promise of the Messiah was something great, the cost to them that they saw was something apparently greater. It was a lot to give up for these guys. And so whether they were the Sadducees that almost became sort of like these nationalistic deists, believe in God, but he's not really involved, or whether it's these Pharisees who became these very traditional, traditionalistic, I don't know if that's a word, uh, traditionalistic guys that were uh, all about legalism and rules and traditions, whatever it was, the one thing that they both agreed on was that they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like Jesus, and Paul is caught in the middle of this. And, And one of the things that I think this brings to us and just brings home is, do we... Do we sometimes take Jesus and put him in our own image? Do we sometimes get caught up in the things that we like, the things that make us comfortable, and interpret Jesus the way that we want? You see, these guys were all convinced that they were following the Bible. They were all convinced that they were following Scripture. They believed that they believed the things that the Bible said, like we do. But both groups had missed the scripture so thoroughly that when Jesus, the Son of God, was in front of them, in front of them, they missed him. Now let me ask you, are we so smart and so sinless and so perfect that we couldn't do the same thing? These guys were serious about it. They spent their lives in it. They're reading the Bible more than most of us probably, okay? They had a lot of it memorized. We've got to think about this. See, Jesus speaks into our lives through his word and challenges our assumptions and challenges the way we think uh, about the way we should live our lives. And we have a couple of options for how we deal with Jesus. All of us do. Like Paul, we can live our lives for Jesus as he calls us to, whatever that is. Or like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we can listen to what we want to and interpret the Bible and Jesus calling for us in sort of our own image. We've got to ask ourselves, who are we listening to? Are we listening to ourselves and taking that, that to this, or we're listening to Jesus and taking this to that, to that. I, I don't know. Sometimes we got to think about it. Do we read the Bible in a way to justify our own assumptions sometimes? Or do we read the Bible and take it for what it says? See, the Bible should make us uncomfortable. It should make us uncomfortable. It should push up against our assumptions and our lifestyles constantly. There should constantly be the scandal of, of it pushing up against us, of us having to face what it really says. And you got to ask yourself, what is the Bible doing to challenge you right now in your life? What does Jesus do or say in Scripture that makes you uncomfortable about your, the way you spend your money, about the way you live your sex life, about your time, about your hobbies, about your entertainment choices, about your job, about your thought life, about your politics, about whatever it is, what is happening in your life that Scripture is pushing up against and causing you to be uncomfortable? Because if there's nothing there, you should be concerned about that at some level because that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. You've got to ask yourself, are you listening? When I was a kid, this is going to be an embarrassing story. When I was a kid, um, I had a problem with peeing the bed, okay? It's out there. I feel, I feel better. Do you feel better? Um, I had a problem peeing the bed, and we tried a lot of stuff. My poor parents. You know, my brother and sister, they didn't have this issue. I did. You know, my brother's like three years younger than me, so I'm like, whatever, seven, eight years old, and he's just a little kid, and he's not peeing the bed. And I, it, was hard, it was hard, okay? A hard life. Drove me to being a lawyer, so that'll tell you something. So <laughs> I had this issue with peeing the bed, all right? Um, and so eventually what my parents did is they found this machine, 
this magical machine that they got from the Sears catalog or whatever it was. And it was basically a sheet of metal, okay? Um, and you put it under the sheet, and what happens is there's like a big box that goes next to it. What happens is when the, when the pee-pee hits the metal, it closes a circuit and makes a really loud alarm. And, ah, like that, okay? So, oh, it gets better. It gets better. So when I, so I'm, so they put this thing in. I'm already embarrassed enough, right? Because, you know, it's either the depends or the thing. Or it's, it's, okay, look. I slept very soundly, all right? I still do. I just don't pee as often because Tiffany get mad at me. Um, <laughs> I think. I don't know. I haven't peed on her yet. But okay. anyway, so I, I'm laying in my bed, right? And whatever, midnight, whatever comes along. And, you know, I pee the bed. Well, the next thing I hear is not ah, from the alarm. The next thing I hear is my mom and my dad and my sister and my brother all shaking me to wake up because the alarm woke all of them up, but not me. So it's just, ah, and I'm just, you know, letting it go, baby. Here I am in a puddle of my own urine, sleeping away like everything's fine, but the noise of that alarm has woken everybody else in the house up, and they come to wake me up, which isn't embarrassing at all. Um, and it's not like this probably only happened once. I'm guessing there was a whole period of time. Eventually, I think we just got rid of the alarm thing. It didn't work, and it was just like, let's just change the sheets every day. Uh, you wouldn't want that mattress back. But uh, in any case, in any case, the alarm was going off, but I didn't hear it right? It's not necessarily that I wasn't listening. I was sleeping. I was so not listening that I was sleeping. But the alarm was going off. Other people heard it, but I didn't hear. The thing that was pushing up against my behavior was very loud, but not effective. And I, and I think we've got to ask ourselves, are we listening? Are we listening to that alarm? Because there's things in here that should be like that alarm bah! in your face. It should be like that. Jesus should be like, hey, hey, listen, Listen, and sometimes it's like other people hear it, and they're like, just by the way, just letting you know there's some alarms going off in your life. But we don't really like that because it's embarrassing, right? I don't like to, to think about the fact that I'm sitting in a puddle of my urine. I don't want you to remind me of that, right? And so maybe we don't like when people remind us, but, but if that's not happening, if the alarms going, aren't going off, or, or rather if we're not listening because they're going off, they're going off. Jesus is speaking through Scripture into your life, and you have to ask yourself, are you listening? Are you sleeping? Can you hear it? What's more important to you than Jesus? If you're studying your Scripture, if you're reading the Bible, if you're pouring yourself into Jesus, letting him pour into you, you should be getting constantly shaken up. Shaken up. When we first got saved and we realized that Jesus had paid the price for our sins, right? And, and we're just, oh, we're so excited. We're so grateful. We're worshiping him. We feel so blessed. And we're like, whatever you want, Jesus, I'll do that. I am so happy. I went from death to life. We're in the Word. We're praying. We're attending Sundays every Sunday, even when it's sunny outside. <clears throat> and we're going to life groups. We're all about it, right? We're all about it. And then what creeps in? What crept into the life of these Sadducees, into the life of these Pharisees? What crept in over time? What crept into the life of these Sadducees that they basically weren't even really believing in God in any real way that I can discern, that makes sense? What happened to these Pharisees that, that they missed the Messiah? What crept into their lives? 
Here's the thing. We tend to tame Jesus over time. We tend to tame his call on our lives. These guys had been in the game a long time, these Sadducees and these Pharisees. Some of us have been in the faith a long time. And, and we have to ask ourselves, are we looking for Scripture and preachers to scratch our itching ears? Or are we looking for transformation? This is what 2 Timothy 4, 1-5 through 5 says. I charge you, therefore, before God... And the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort. You see, these are words that say, coming up against you. Coming up against the things you think. Coming up against the way that you live and the way that you use your money and the way that you do sex and the way that you look at alcohol and the way that you look at these things because we want, because you need to be transformed. You got to rebuke, you got to exhort with the scripture, with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will keep up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Listen, is the gospel about how to live a comfortable suburban life in Western Washington? Is that what it's about? Because of everything we get from Scripture and every verse that we have on our coffee cup is really just making us feel good about that. We're probably missing something about the big picture and the eternal picture of what Jesus is trying to do in transforming your life. Probably. Are we looking for the practical or the radical? If Jesus showed up and taught what he really teaches here, would we be worshiping him? Or would we be ignoring him? I'm going back to sleep. If Paul was here saying, give up your prejudices and your traditions and the things that you think are what's important and listen to what Jesus is really saying, will we listen to him? Will we follow what he's saying or will we try to pull him apart into pieces like the Sadducees and the Pharisees? As as an attorney, I negotiated a lot. Did a lot of negotiating. So when I would go with a client into... um, you know, a mediation or a negotiation. Uh, sometimes there would be, I would say often there would be what I would call non-negotiables, okay? So my clients told me ahead of time, listen, I'm not selling that painting for less than $10,000. Or if it's an employment, you know, I'm not gonna work on Sundays no matter what, okay? These are non-negotiables. People use other words that can be called non-starters, preconditions, issues that are sacrosanct, uh, which almost sounds religious, right? Um, essential conditions, whatever it is. Basically, it's you can have all this, but don't touch this. Don't touch this thing. That's not up for negotiation. So if you have any of these non-negotiables in your life that you keep from Jesus, then I could tell you very easily what's more important than Jesus in your life. If we interpret Scripture and Jesus in order to justify our non-starters, those things that we keep from him, it's okay that I do this over here because fill in the blank. Fill in the blank, right? Then, Then we start interpreting Scripture that way, and we start to become just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, where we've twisted the scripture, and you're going to miss it all. You can't twist it at all and expect to get the same place. Those of you who are math people, what happens if I turn a line by one degree? What happens 10 miles down the road? How far apart are they? You don't have to give me the real answer. Julie's working it out in her calculator. It's okay. <laughs> it's a long way. These guys, they believed in this. They read it. They memorized it, but they had twisted it to justify their own prejudices. 
And by the time it got from the prophets a few hundred years to when Jesus the Messiah showed up, they were so far away from what the original scripture said they couldn't even see the Son of God. How much are you willing to twist to justify your non-starters? How much are you saying, you can have all this, Jesus, but don't touch this thing? Because the second that you do that, you start twisting this. You have to. There's no other way, right? We make Jesus in our own image. We're like, oh, well, that doesn't apply. This New Testament passage doesn't apply anymore. It was a different culture. Oh, really? You were there, huh? Jesus didn't really mean those things. Maybe he shouldn't have put him in there then. Or, you know, whatever it is. It's all too complicated. Basically, we all just need to be good. Good meaning whatever I think is good and me keeping my non-starters over here. Whatever you're doing. Or I'm just not going to read it. Also, a reaction some people say. Some people have. So what's your reaction when Scripture comes up against you, when the Bible comes up against you about your money, about your sex life, about your marriage, about your work life, your thought life, your behavior, When it says, hey, listen, don't gossip, don't cause division, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Treat your, pray for your enemies, go and make disciples. What are you, what are you, what are your non-starters in there? What are your, oh no, this one's okay. I can justify this one. I can justify that one. We want to see everything from our own perspective. But here's the thing, our perspective sucks. That's why Jesus wants to transform us. Your perspective without Jesus is not going to take you somewhere good. You can see where it took the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they wanted to use Scripture to justify their perspective. Jesus is not going to tell you what you want to hear. That's not what he does. He's here to transform you. He's here to transform you. Look, I don't want to transform my body. You know why? Sit-ups hurt. Amen? I never say that, but for that, I'll say amen. Listen, it hurts. Working out hurts, not eating Giuliano's pizza hurts. Can I get an amen? Hallelujah. It is painful. It is painful to transform your body. Listen, it also hurts to love your neighbor like yourself when you want to be selfish. It also hurts to give the money to the the neighbor who's suffering and in need instead of spending it on a new Xbox because you don't get that Xbox. Yeah, it hurts. To be transformed. Oh, but it's beautiful. And for those of you who the Lord has been transforming, you know that to be true. And yet still, somehow, we find ourselves caught up in this. We can so easily become like these two sides, like these religious leaders tearing Paul to pieces. That we're so serious about this theological fight on resurrection that they miss Jesus completely. We can get so wrapped up in our own traditions and the rhythms of our own lives that we miss Jesus. How will we know that we're being transformed, that we're allowing Jesus to push into our lives? How will we know that we're listening when you're uncomfortable? When you're giving up things that you want to keep? When the Lord is is asking you to do something and it hurts and you do it? That's how you know. How do you know that you're not listening? Those things aren't happening. If you're entirely comfortable all the time, now look, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't have comfort and peace and wonderful things for your life. He does for mine. I have, I have so many things that I, that I am so grateful you could not believe to the Lord for my family, my children, my wife, 
my Camaro, all right? There's, there's a number of things that, you can be, that, that can be a blessing to you in your life, okay, that you can, and that you can enjoy. But if any of them come, in fr- including your wife, your husband, your parents, whatever, if any of them become, come between you and God, if any of them are non-starters, Lord, I'll do anything you want, but, but don't touch this, don't touch that. This, this relationship has to be there. That thing has to be there. If any of that's there, again, this is going to start going sideways because you're going to have to interpret it in the way that you want to instead of the way, instead of by what it means. If you're changing your habits, you're changing the rhythms of your life to comport with what Jesus says, to comply with Scripture, to follow the commands of Jesus, it's working. You're being transformed. If you're not doing that, you're not. We're being careful about what we say, about what we think, about what we do, because we love God so much. And because when Jesus says it, we don't argue with him. We just do it. We're being transformed. Listen, don't lose your first love. Don't lose the power of the love and appreciation and worship that we have for Jesus Christ because what what he did for us on the cross. You know, we're going to take communion in a little while. Don't, don't lose the joy that we have when we take that bread and that cup and we think about what the price was that was paid and the love that should be pouring from your heart for Jesus. Don't lose that. Don't lose that because as soon as that happens, as soon as you start to lose that and start to, and that, that's no longer the thing that's in front of you. It's the reason why we take communion every week. When that's no longer the thing in front of you, it does not take long until you start twisting the scripture to suit your comforts. And from there, you're just another Pharisee or Sadducee, denying the real Jesus for the one you invented to serve you. Denying the real Jesus for the one you invented to serve your comforts, your traditions. And pulling Paul and the scripture and Jesus to pieces. Losing it, missing it. God's your father. He's your father. He loves you. If you're in Christ, you have a father that loves you. You need to let him be your father. Let him teach you. Let him change you. Let him transform you. You've got to have that love for your daddy, for your father. When, when we were in law school, um, Tiffany and I, she wasn't in law school. I was in law school. She was actually in a teaching master's program, but she got most of law school because I talk a lot. Um, we, we decided to have a night out, and we had some friends, uh, Mike and Carrie Smith, good friends of ours still, to this day, um, they took our kids, okay? Corey was probably, I don't know, four, and Ethan was one or two. Um, so they took our kids for the night, and we, you know, thought, yay, I'm sure we just took a nap. Um, you know, you have little kids, and you're in law school, but we might have gone out or whatever. Um, and so the, our kids are with them, and, and, my, and Corey, being the inquisitive girl that she is, she asked Mike and Carrie, who they didn't know very well, why don't you have any kids? They didn't have any kids. They were a young married couple. They didn't have any kids. Why don't you have any kids? And Mike says, well, you know, we just don't have any yet. You know, do you think we should have some? And Corey gets kind of pensive and, you know, really thinking for a minute. And she comes back and says, no, I don't think people should take kids from their parents. <laughs> she thought they were going to keep her. And Ethan, she's like, I already have parents, right? I love them. I'm, I'm, with, I'm with these people, Right? And so we need to be like that, right, with God, with our Father. No, no, I got a parent. I got a father. I got a father. He loves me. When he, when he comes up against me with these things, it's for me. It's good for me. It's good for him. It's good for us. It's good for my neighbor. It's good for my family. It hurts, yes. Transformation hurts. But it's good for me. 
And I know that if I try to start interpreting things and start doing backflips around Scripture to make people happy or to not offend somebody, to, to comply with the, what, what's, what, what, the script, what the society, I'm sorry, not what Scripture, with what society is saying you ought to do so you don't offend anybody, and you got to follow this line, and you don't want to offend yourself, let's be honest. If you start doing that, man, you aren't, you aren't looking to your father. You aren't trusting him. You aren't trusting Jesus. You're trusting you. We cannot see Jesus in our own image. We cannot. We need to let him conform us to his image and his calling. Let's pray. Well, thanks for listening to our sermon. Again, this has been a sermon from Axe Church in Camas, Washington. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. If you did, you can subscribe to our channel as well as liking and commenting. We love to hear how these sermons are impacting you. You can also take a look at our podcast series that we have out. And we'll catch you again next week.